Welcome back, Donuts. Welcome to another episode of Fried Dough, your weekly fix of true crime. I'm your girl, Gina. And just in case we got new true crime enthusiasts out there, I want to remind listeners that the stories that I cover on this podcast may be difficult to hear. However, it is very important to shine a light on these cases and remember the victims who were affected. So let's get started with this story, guys. But first, I got to give you the update on the whole little group drug testing. When all the smoke cleared and everything calmed down, eight people out of 13 people were gone out of my department. It is now just five of us sitting in that department working. And what happened is, first they fired six people. That sixth person went in there and threw person number seven and person number eight up under the bus. So until he said something, seven and eight, they were okay. They were working. Number eight, he was waiting on his drug test. And number seven, he actually passed his drug test. But because number six told them that he was in the car with him when they was smoking, guess what? He got fired too. I don't know under what terms, but yeah, he got fired too. Number six needs to be ashamed of himself. There is not a loyal bone in his body. And that was just a lame-ass move, and he'll always be remembered as a cornball to me. But I could be wrong about number eight. We're still waiting on him to tell us whether or not they called him, because they do have to call him. So I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure about number eight, but basically that's what went down. And if number eight come back, and if he's working, I will update you. Not that you really care, but... I just think this is kind of juicy and I just wanted to share. So let's get started. Oh, and I passed my drug test just in case you ain't put two and two together. (laughs) Right before publishing edit, number eight, he received this call 10 o'clock in the morning and told him, yeah, you can't return. You failed the drug test. So... That's eight people annihilated from a random drug test. The whole department. In the archives of history, certain moments stand out as a stark reminder of the depths of human complexity and the disturbing potential of the human mind. One such moment occurred on the seemingly ordinary Monday morning, January 29, 1979, in San Diego, California. What transpired on that day would etch the name Brenda Spencer into the collective memory of a chilling example of the unexpected and unthinkable. Brenda Spencer's case encompasses more than the tragic event that unfolded at Cleveland Elementary School. It unravels a narrative that probes the atrocities of mental health, the fragility of adolescence, and the intersection of societal influence that can lead to incomprehensible acts of violence. The event of the day still resonates with profound implications, prompting us to examine not only the motives behind Brenda's action, but also the broad factor that allows such a tragedy to occur. As I dove into the depths of Brenda's case, I was confronted with a question that challenged my understanding of human behavior, mental well-being, 
and the importance to foster a society that nurtures and safeguards its youth. The following exploration seeks not only to understand the sequence of events, but also to unravel the layers of complexity that continues to shape our conversation about tragedy, empathy, and the responsibilities we bear as a society to prevent such occurrence in the future. This is Fried Dome True Crime Podcast, and this is the Grover Cleveland Elementary School Shooting. I don't like Mondays. Brenda Spencer was born April 3, 1962 in the suburbs of San Diego called San Carlos, California, to father Wallace and mother Dorothy Dot Spencer. Wallace worked at San Diego State University as an audiovisual tech, and Dorothy was an active sportswoman and played golf avidly and worked as a bookkeeper at the Andy Williams San Diego Golf Tournament. Wallace and Dorothy met when he was enlisted in the Navy and stationed in San Diego. They met and married on December 12, 1954. Wallace was 26 years old and Dot was 19 years old. Brenda was the youngest of three. She had an older brother and sister, Scott, who was six years older than her, and Teresa, who was four years older than her. In January 1972, Brenda was nine years old when Wallace and Dorothy divorced. During the custody procedure, Scott and Teresa were asked who did they want to live with, and for whatever reason unknown, they picked Wallace. So instead of separating all three of the children, the judge made Brenda go with the other two, and Wallace was awarded custody of all three of the children. Dorothy got to stay in the family home while Wallace purchased a second home just a few blocks away on Lake Atlin Avenue. Their new home was located directly across the street from Cleveland Elementary School. Cleveland Elementary School had over 300 students from kindergarten to sixth grade and 13 teachers. Brayton Rags was their well-liked 53-year-old principal he had just been assigned to the position after the previous principal retired. He was a World War II vet and he worked in the school district for almost 30 years. So before the divorce, Brenda was really close to her mom and she looked upon her mother for everything. But after a while, Dot spent less and less time even checking up on Brenda. And at a certain point, she stopped even knowing what was going on with Brenda on a day-to-day -day basis. She had no idea of the mental troubles that had been happening to her. Brenda, she changed after the divorce. She became quiet, kept to herself, and no longer played sports. She was considered a little odd by her schoolmates in that she was small and quiet, but for the most part, she flew under the radar. She never really liked school, and she really didn't excel academically. Brenda was a very bright girl. She was artistic, she liked to read, she write poetry, and she was a talented photographer who won a competition that was put on by the Humane Society. 
Brenda loved animals and they were her favorite subject for her photography. She often remarked that she wanted to either become a photographer or a veterinarian. Now, since the divorce, Wally and Brenda lived in a home alone on Lake Atlin Avenue. Her sister attended college nearby, but she opted to stay in an apartment with other students. And her brother, Scott, he was away at school as well. Since Teresa was the only one who cleaned up and did chores in the house, and Wallace was known to be a hoarder, and since no one was there to regularly clean the house, the house got into a chaotic disarray. You know what? That's just a nice way of saying it was a mess. It was nasty. So depending on where you research this story yet, and it's really odd to me, it will say Brenda and Wallace shared a room and a bed, or Brenda and Wallace shared a mattress on the floor in the living room. But in a book, I Don't Like Mondays by Ann Lee Hunt, it says that Brenda's room was very cluttered and untidied with a bed, stereo clothes, but no posters on the wall. It also says that Scott had bunk beds in his room and it was obviously used for storage because it had things thrown in there like coolers and chairs and things like that. So either way, it just doesn't seem like it was inhabitable to me for a teenage girl. If I find some pictures, I'll post them. I think I saw them, but I didn't save it. Wallace's room had a box spring and mattress on the floor, and it was to take notice that Wallace had a dollhouse at the foot of this bed. This might make sense later in this story, but Brenda said that she never played with the dollhouse, and it must have been her sister's Teresa. She was more into Hot Wheels cars. In January 1979, Brenda was a 16-year-old high school student who attended Patrick Henry High School in San Carlos. Brenda was a small girl standing at only 5 foot 1 inches tall and weighed 85 pounds. She had long reddish hair that she always parted in the middle and it fell straight down to the middle of her back. She wore large rim glasses that made her look somewhat bookish or nerdy. She preferred to dress in baggy t-shirts and jeans and oversized sweatshirts. Her favorite item of clothing was a navy skull cap that she often wore. She considered it to be her lucky hat. Brenda had always been somewhat of a tomboy when she was younger. She excelled in softball, bowling, soccer, and especially golf. Brenda didn't really have many friends and seemed to be alone most of the time since during the day Wallace would go to work and at night he started going to school as well. On Saturday, January 27th, Brent came to town and spent the day hanging out with Brenda. Brent is Broderick Brent Fleming, Brenda's only friend, and at 13 years old, Brent was three and a half years younger than Brenda. Brent used to live next door to Brenda until the autumn before the shooting. His stepfather was a police officer named Larry Peach. Brenda and Brent would always talk about shooting a police officer. They would always have imaginations and play out scripts on how they would shoot a police officer while sitting in a car or walking down the street. They often got in trouble together. They would shoplift and they would retrieve stuff from the garbage cans, a practice most known as dumpster diving. And in the spring of 1978, a year before the shooting, Brenda and Brent were caught trespassing 
in Cleveland Elementary School. They had shot out the windows and broke in. Brenda was assigned a counselor after that. So on Sunday, January 28th, Brenda asked Wallace for the keys to the van. He noticed that she walked back into the house with the clothes that, that were still in the van from the last camping trip. He wondered why she would want to bring the clothes in at this time. It was obviously too late to wash them for school tomorrow. The next day, Brenda woke up and told Wallace that she was too sick to go to school. Basically, because Brenda had a history of having very bad PMS cramps, she told him that she was cramping that day, and Wallace told her that it was okay for her to stay at home, knowing her history. So at 7 o'clock a.m., Wallace, he left to go to work. So soon after Wallace left, Brenda retrieved the bundle of clothing that she had brought from the van the previous night. In it were boxes of ammunition that had been outside in the van, along with the camping supplies. There were about six to 700 rounds of long shell bullets for her 22 caliber Marsburg rifle, a recent Christmas gift from her father. On January 29, 1979, Principal Rags came out to open the school gate at 8.15 and went back into his office. 16-year-old Brenda Spencer pointed her 22 caliber semi-automatic rifle out the front door of her home to San Diego's Grover Cleveland Elementary School across the street. Immediately after the school bell rang at 8.30 a.m., shots rang out. She waited for the school to open, then began firing on the students who were arriving at school. Monica Selvig, age nine, was on her way into the school and she was shot in her left side. No one knew what happened and continued to walk around her while she was on the ground. More shots rang out and Mary Clark, age eight, was hit in the abdomen. Greg Varner, age eight, he was shot in the butt. Both he and Mary fell in the driveway. Then Crystal Hardy, age eight, fell crying, holding her wrist. So while this was going on, Principal Rags was in his office and he heard the shots. He knew what it was. So what he do, he jumped into action and he ran out to help the children. While he was on his way to go and help Monica on the ground, he was hit twice center mass in his chest before he was able to reach Monica. Sixth grade teacher Daryl Barnes saw Mr. Rags on the ground and he ran to him to see if he can help. And when he saw all of the blood, he froze. He snapped out of it real quick when he saw Monica on the ground, so he ran over towards Monica and he grabbed her and he ran back towards the building. I recorded this section over and over again, just thinking, 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 what, what really happened in this situation and it just came to me that I think Principal Rags told Mr. Barnes to go and get Monica and kept him out there. Hero status, y'all. Hero status. So Mr. Barnes ran back into the school with Monica and told the secretary to call the emergency line. In 1979, 911 was not established in the United States. It didn't get established until 1985. Mike Suchard, age 56, was the school's head custodian. He was a native of Youngstown, Ohio. He was a Navy vet and he served in World War II and the Korean War, and he joined the school district in 1968. He was a big man and the kids loved him. They called him Mr. Mike. Mr. Mike, he heard the shots and everything came to him instinctively. 
He saw Principal Rags on the ground and he instantly thought that he might go into shock. He grabbed a blanket and he ran out there to Mr. Rags. Dale Barn yelled out to Mr. Mike that he was running in the line of fire, but Mr. Mike kept going. Once he got near Mr. Rags, he was hit in the back and knocked off of his feet. The night before, Mr. Mike's wife had a premonition about what was going to happen, and she told Mr. Mike, and she asked him, please don't be a hero, and he said there is no way he could be a coward if the children needed him. Mr. Mike died while being a hero. So while all of this is going on, they still didn't know where the shooting was coming from. Kids were still showing up to school. Parents was dropping their children off in front of the school, but for some reason, Brenda didn't aim at the parents or their cars. So at this time, all hell was breaking loose, rightfully so. Whether it was from a bullet hitting it or somebody pulling, the fire alarm was going off. The kids who hadn't really made it into school yet, they were still walking to school. And when they got up to the school, they stopped because they thought a fire drill was going on and they started waiting for a teacher to tell them what to do. And on that wait, nine-year-old Christy Buell was shot in the stomach and in the lower back. And a kindergarten teacher, not knowing what was going on, led her class outside, but it was on the other side of the building. When she realized what was going on, she quickly ushered all of her children back into the school and into the auditorium. No one was hurt. Shots continued to ring out, but because someone spotted a curtain moving in Brenda's home, they realized where the shooting was coming from, across the street. But at this time, more students were still being hit. Ten-year-old Julie Robles was walking up the walkway. As she was turning to look at Mr. Rags on the ground, she was hitting the side, but she was able to run to the door and make it into the school safely. Later that year in April, she returned back to the house to sell candy to Scott, but she didn't tell him who she was. I just wanted to put that in there. Charles A. Miller was coming up the walkway of the school. He saw Mr. Rags and Mr. Mike on the ground. While he was looking at them, he was shot from behind through his shoulder and the bullet was lodged near his heart. He was led to safety by Mr. Barnes. The first on the scene was Officer Dennis Doramus and his partner, Robert Robbs. Officer Robb was 27 years old and he was two weeks out of the police academy. He was shot through his bulletproof vest and it went through his neck. But he didn't feel anything. He just thought it hit his vest and he was fine. So now the EMT arrived and the officer, Rob and Doramus, started trying to help to get Principal Rags and Mr. Mike into the ambulance. When Officer Rob was helping with Mr. Mike, he started feeling a tingling in his right hand. He said he realized that he was shot in the vest. It ricocheted off of the vest and went through his neck. Brenda, she started shooting at the people trying to get near the ambulance. Officer Ted Kasanek was hearing what was going on and he was on his way to the school. So he and a San Diego security guard commandeered the garbage truck while it was making its rounds a little ways down the street. Brenda saw them coming with the truck and started aiming for the driver. They drove the truck in the front of the school, blocking the shooter's sight from the school. Officer Ted Kasnick realized that he was now being shot at and quickly exited the truck through the passenger side door. 
The shooting stopped. It was 9 a.m. So in 1979, the phone numbers were really set up in a particular type of way. You was able to get a prefix on a street and you can just start playing with the last four digits and get some of the houses that live actually on that street. It was basically taking a shot in the dark. So on this day, Steve Wiegand, a reporter from the San Diego Tribune, started calling numbers in hopes to get a witness to what was going on. On his first try, just after 9 o'clock a.m., he called a number and a girl answered the call. The person identified themselves as Brenda. She paused her shooting to answer the phone call. Steve Wiegand asked the girl Brenda if she heard the shooting and if she knew anything about the incident that was going on right now. Brenda answered, yes, I saw the whole thing. While Brenda was on the phone, this is the break that Officer Kazanek needed to help assist with all of the injured. Steve Wiegand asked Brenda who did it and if she knew where the shooting was coming from. Brenda said, she saw everything. It's a 16-year-old kid. It's coming from 6356 Lake Atlin. Steve replied, isn't that your address? Brenda said, sure. Who do you think did it? She laughed and then she hung up the phone. Steve called right back thinking that she misunderstood the question or she was just joking. Brenda answered the phone again. Steve asked, is there an adult around the house? She said, no, my father isn't home. He told Brenda who he was and wanted to ask a few questions. Brenda got excited and she asked if she was being interviewed and agreed to chat. She went on to tell Stephen that she started shooting at 8.30 a.m. and she used a Ruger 10-22-10 fire automatic rifle that she got for Christmas from her father and that she told her father that she was too sick to go to school. Stephen asked, why? Why are you doing this? Brenda answered, I don't know. I don't like Mondays. This livens up the day. I just did it for the fun of it. Do you like Mondays? Nobody likes Mondays. This is the way to cheer up the day. When Wiggins told her she hit about three or four people, she was very disappointed to hear that. Before hanging up, she calmly said, I nailed me a good pig and I want to shoot some more. Then she hung up. Most likely, she's talking about Officer Rob. Contrary to what Brenda said, no more shots were fired. The San Diego Tribune reporters, they contacted the police and told them about the conversation. The police told the reporters not to call back and that they would try to make contact with Brenda. While Brenda and the reporter was on the phone, rescue efforts were being made. And at 9.45 a.m., the hostage team arrived. They started calling Brenda by the phone and by the bullhorn, but there was no answer by Brenda. They didn't know if she had committed suicide or ran out the back to escape, so they waited. Finally, at 12.06 p.m., Detective Austin made contact with Brenda. He asked if she needed anything. She asked for a Burger King Whopper. Detective Austin said, only if you surrender. Brenda said she was having too much fun. He asked her what was her reason, and she said, I have none. It was just the spur of the moment. She said it was real easy picking off shooting the ones in the blue and red coats. They made the best targets. She said that she hoped to shoot another pig and she had always hated people because they were mean. She said that it was real funny seeing the kids running around. She told them that she could have shot more people. Meanwhile, a crowd was forming nearby and they were chanting, shoot her. 
during the call, she expressed anger towards Mr. Mike. She said because he was trying to help the children, that's why she shot him. She also expressed anger towards Officer Ted Kasnick because he blocked her view with the dump truck and that's why she was shooting at him. During this call, Detective Olsen asked Brenda if she had a message for her father and she said, yeah, tell him to go get screwed. He asked Brenda, well, what about your mom? She said, no, but I don't like her either. Brenda told the officer that she took a lot of drugs that day. She had downers, pot, beer, and whiskey. She said her father been giving her $5 a week for her drugs for about a year now, but her drug test later tested negative on all alcohol and drugs. She asked if it was being televised, and Olsen replied that there were a few reporters around, and she responded with, that's great. Brenda made it clear that she wanted to be handcuffed just like in the movies. They called Wallace at work to tell him what was going on and he seemed blown away with surprise. He left his work immediately. But when they called Dot to tell her what was going on, she told them that she could not leave because she had a desk full of money because she was an accountant, remember? Yeah. But the SWAT officer said, no, you're leaving. Noreen Harmon, Brenda's youth counselor, said that she told Wallace that Brenda showed signs of being suicidal, and a week after that, Wallace and Scott got together and bought Brenda her Ruger 22 caliber rifle and over 500 rounds. Five weeks later, Brenda opened fire on the school. During the surrender, children were being evacuated, and they were sent to the closest school, which was a junior high school. This was when Christy Buell made it known that she was bleeding. She wanted to tell her teacher, but she couldn't find her in all the chaos. And she was so shy, she just kept it to herself. She was shot in the abdomen and lower back. And once she made it to the hospital, they found a bullet hole in the hood of her coat. Olsen was able to talk Brenda into surrendering her two unloaded rifles. She walked them to the end of the driveway and she put them down. She went back into the house and she got back on the phone. Then she asked Olsen if he wanted the ammunition as well. Olsen said yes. She told him it was going to take a while for her to collect it all because it was so much. Five minutes later, Brenda was walking the ammunition down the driveway. While she was placing the ammunition down, she saw two SWAT team members and they handcuffed and arrested Brenda at 3.06 p.m., six and a half hours after the shooting started. Police said Brenda shot 36 shots and hit 11 people. However, Wallace took inventory on all the ammunition they had in the house and said that Brenda must have shot off over 300 rounds. It was never recorded the number of casings that were found because the house was such a mess. Who really knows? By the door where Brenda was shooting, there were two knives and a bottle of Southern Comfort. Wallace was a recovering alcoholic and didn't keep liquor in the house. And since Scott, who was a drinker, he wasn't there at the time, it's a mystery where it came from. Scott said it wasn't his and said that Brenda was a lightweight on drinking. In fact, she would drink one beer and would fall asleep. No one knows where this bottle came from. The victims later sued Wallace for neglectful parenting because he was told about Brenda's mental state by her counselor a year earlier and instead of believing the counselor and getting Brenda some help, 
he purchased a semi-automatic firearm for her. Now that's parenting for you. But they had to wait until the trial was over. Meanwhile, the next day, school resumed. It was no extra police or security of any kind. All of the school flags flown at half staff in memory of Principal Rags and custodian Mike Suchard. They tried to clean the sidewalk off from the blood, but it was still there the next day. Wednesday, January 31, 1979, Brenda was charged with two counts of murder, one count of assault with a deadly weapon on a police officer, and nine counts of assault to commit murder. On Monday, October 1st, Brenda stood next to her attorney in the Santa Ana courthouse and pled guilty on two counts of murder in the first degree. She also pled guilty on several counts of assault with a deadly weapon. She was unemotional until the judge, McMillan, asked her what happened that day. In tears, Brenda said in a low voice, I shot from my house and killed two people. To the 11 other charges, she simply whispered guilty to the judge when asked for her plea. Brenda was sentenced to two 25 years to life sentences for the murders of Principal Rags and Mr. Mike Suchart. So while Brenda was being held in a juvenile detention home, she had a roommate named Sheila McCoy. Sheila McCoy looked just like Brenda. Some said that they can actually pass as sisters. So around August, when Brenda was being held in the juvenile detention center, Wallace was visiting her and he also met her roommate, Sheila. So he started visiting Sheila as well. So during that time, Sheila ran right out the front door. Wallace was sitting there in a running car. Wallace had took her home and was able to drive her through the garage after he had cleaned it all out for her so he can keep her concealed from his neighbors. It's really not clear how long Sheila was at the house during that escape. At some point in this pedophilic relationship, Sheila got pregnant. So what Wallace did was took her to Arizona to have a shotgun wedding. And at that particular time, Sheila was four months pregnant. And both of her parents stood there as witnesses. So now the trial is over and the civil settlement was awarded to all the victims, $300,000, which they had to split. And that was paid from Wallace's home insurance. The Rags family had a lawyer which was able to negotiate that the Rags was able to receive the first 100,000 that was awarded. $85,000 went to Principal Rags's wife and $5,000 for each of his three children was awarded. Also, he was his family was awarded the $55,000 in workers' comp. Mike Suchar's family received $85,000 plus another $55,000 from workers' comp. And the children, they received their pay for the amount of time they spent in the hospital. So Christy Buell, she was awarded $52,000 because she was still doing physical therapy. Monica Selvig, she received $33,000. Greg Varner, he got shot in the butt. He received $30,000. He still had a bullet near his pelvis. Charles A. Miller, he received $5,000 for being shot two centimeters from his heart. Julie Robles, she received $4,000 for being shot in the side. Christy Hardy received $3,000. She was shot through the wrist. It didn't hit anything major. Audrey Stites, she received $3,000 for her elbow injury. 
Officer Rob received $9,000 for a bullet near his neck, which was lodged in his spine, and he received $8,000 in workers' comp. One day, he was on a routine traffic stop, and he instantly was paralyzed. That bullet had moved towards his spine and paralyzed him, and he had to go into surgery. And I couldn't find whether or not they removed it, but he was walking after that. After the shooting, years later, Brenda said that she was so high off of drugs, PCP, marijuana, whiskey, everything. Although, again, that day her toxicology reported said she was negative on everything. She was denied every parole hearing up until 2022. I couldn't find if she had one in 2023 or not. Do you remember the gun? Mm -hmm. I remember the, the rifle because I had gotten that a month previous. As a Christmas present? Yeah, it was for Christmas. From your father? Mm-hmm. Do you remember loading the gun? Do you remember pointing the gun? Mm -hmm. I remember looking out and, and seeing like commando types sneaking up on the house and stuff. And I don't remember actually going in and getting the rifle and loading it up, but I remember seeing them and being real scared and terrified. You know, they're coming to get me, and I have to protect myself and stuff. And I know somewhere in there I did go and get the, the rifle. So the whole thing to you, 14 years later, is just this drugged-out haze, basically. And, yeah, it's really, it's really broken up and fragmented. It's, uh, I, I can't sit there and, and tell you, well, at this time I did this, and at this time... You know, it's just little bits and pieces that have come back over the years. Um, like the week prior, that one, I, I don't really have any memories from that week ahead of the incident. And the week after, I was asleep. I was coming down off the, the street drugs, and even that week, I don't really have a whole lot of memories of it. It's like. I slept a lot and I was going through withdrawals and things. Brenda Spencer told me what she did that day was not first degree murder, which takes planning, but the lesser crime of manslaughter. I don't sit here and, and plan on how to go out and kill people and stuff like that. That's, that's um, just not, that's not how I am or who I am. And uh, how it was presented, and uh, it made me look like that. There were allegations that mm -hmm. Brenda Spencer got the rifle, loaded it, mm -hmm. planned all of this, and shot those people. Yeah, and they made it look like, you know, just for the fun of it and stuff, which is totally senseless. There's, uh, every day I live with, you know, the knowledge that I, I took the lives of two men. And that's real difficult. In the following years of this shooting, there have been many books written about Brenda Spencer case, one being which the one that I read called I Don't Like Mondays, the true story behind America's first modern shooting by N. Lee Hunt. Now, when I was looking at this title, I saw the first modern day shoot school shooting and I was just like, whoa, is this the first modern day school shooting? in America in 1979. And I started looking up and researching things and I realized this isn't even the first school shooting in the 1970s. 
And then I hear a lot of people when I research, I heard a lot of people saying she's the only girl. She wasn't even the only girl, period. She was literally the fourth girl. And I'm just going to give you some dates and names and ages. March 11th, 1908, in Fenway, Kenmore, Massachusetts, a 39-year-old teacher, Miss Sarah, she shot 34-year-old teacher, Miss Miss Bailey, November 18, 1949, in Bronzeville, Illinois, 16-year-old girl, Levon Kane, at DuSable High School. She shot another student at school. On March 30, 1960, in Alice, Texas, 14-year-old Donna DeVork, at Du Bois Junior High School shot another student. And also doing this research, I found that the very first school shooting in American history was in the 1800s. And if my memory served me right, because I didn't write it down, it was 1888, something like that. But the Brenda Spencer case serves as a somber reminder of complex interplay between mental health and societal influences and the potential of unthinkable acts of violence. The tragic event of this fateful day in 1979 left scars that continue to resonate, sparking discussions about the importance of identifying and addressing mental health issues in young individuals. Brenda Ann Spencer's actions and her chilling statement, I don't like Mondays, remain a haunting symbol of the devastating consequences that can arise when warning signs are ignored or overlooked. This case underscores the crucial need of support and intervention that prevents similar tragedies in the future, while also prompting us to reflect on the broader societal factors that contribute to such tragic outcomes. Thank you for taking this time to learn about the Brenda Spencer case with me. It is essential to remember these tragic events as we strive to understand the factors that contribute to such incidents and work towards preventing them in the future. By staying informed, we can foster safer communities and better support those in need of help. And it is important to remember the unsung heroes who responded with courage and compassion during that difficult time. These individuals, whether they were teachers, first responders, or community members, played a vital role in providing support and care to those affected by this tragedy. Their selflessness and dedication in the face of adversity are a testament to the strength of the human spirit. Let us honor these unsung heroes for their unwavering commitment to make the world a better place even in the darkest of moments. Today's Missing Persons, we're featuring Ramaya Terrell. Ramaya is a 16-year-old black female, black hair, brown eyes, 5'3", 130 pounds. Ramaya was last seen in Grove City, Ohio on May 22, 2023. If anyone has any information regarding Ramaya's whereabouts, please contact the Special Victims Unit at 614 614- 525-3555 or you can contact Crime Stoppers at 614-645-4749 or visit www.p3tips.com. Let's all help bring Ray Maya home to her family.
If you enjoyed this episode, hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode. If you have any insight on this case or any other case that I've covered, or if you have any case suggestions, contact the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Or if you like, you can leave a 60 second message and that message might be on the next episode. All of the links are in the show notes. Until next time, Donuts, please stay safe, stay vigilant, and please always, always, always trust your instincts, child. They will never steal you wrong.